Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Cold open! It's Hank, and we've got a special episode for you this week, but before we get to it, a reminder. This weekend, starting on February 25th, is the Project for Awesome. You can get involved in the P4A in a few different ways. You can make a video promoting your favorite charity and submit it to projectforawesome.com. I made a video on Vlogbrothers a couple of weeks ago talking about how to make good videos promoting charities. You can also donate to the Project for Awesome, and in exchange, you can get a ton of amazing perks, including... Our all-time favorite, everybody gets it, the digital download bundle, which will include an exclusive episode of Dear Hank and John, as well as all of our TikTok drafts, which is, I'm not kidding, I think over an hour of truly unhinged content if you add both of our drafts together. But also, there are, of course, tons of other great perks and perks that will be added throughout the 48-hour live stream, which reminds me, 48-hour live stream at youtube.com slash vlogbrothers, where John and I will be absolutely ruining our credibility and having lots of amazing guests guest hosts. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Join us. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Uh, no. <laughs> it's Dear Chelsea and Hank. <laughs> it's a podcast where two brothers and sometimes a brother and a friend answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Chelsea, do you know where the, the, uh, the, um, the, the polar bear keeps his money? Mm, on the rapidly diminishing ice flows that remain in the Arctic. No, he keeps it in the snowbank. Jeez, God, oh. we're already <laughs> already throwing. Already, it's a bummer already. Look, yeah, uh, we're, I'm sure that I'm sure that we will get to the bummers. Um, so one of the things that is weird about a, a, a podcast where two brothers answer your questions is that John and I know about some things. Like John can answer your questions about uh, uh, English football. And I can answer your questions about Mars, but there's a lot of stuff we don't know that much about. And, and one of the things that we most frequently get questions about is jobs and money. And Ooh. I feel not particularly qualified to talk about that stuff. So one of, th one of the things that we'd like to do more of is have people who can actually answer questions like that on Dear Hank and John and ask them those kinds of questions. And Chelsea is uh, does that for a living. Chelsea runs uh, a business and YouTube channel around uh, personal finance. The channel's called The Financial Diet. 
I am, have worked with Chelsea in the past, and I love anytime we get to chat. And so I'm very happy to be talking with you today. Me too. How is everybody refinances? Well, there were like 75 crypto commercials during the Super Bowl, so not great, Bob. <laughs> Look, we have to gamble uh, more, apparently. That's what our society truly needs right now, is more people involved in gambling. Just more unregulated securities that the average person is being encouraged to buy into as a possible retirement plan. I think that's great. I don't really know how you else you make the bottom of the pyramid bigger, because how else will the top of the pyramid get higher? It's very true. Can I ask a couple of questions? Because one of my questions is, you know, like, to what extent do we understand why people are chasing these dreams? And of course, everybody's always been chasing get-rich-quick schemes of, of one kind or another. But is it is it more now that there is sort of more... Um, is is the is the demand gone up because there is more of a, a sort of situation where the the need for that has increased, or is the demand gone up because we've created systems and and sort of like marketing gimmicks that have are making the demand for schemes like that go up? Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier that we would be getting into bummers uh, soon, and here we are uh, because yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the most uh, because cryptocurrencies have been around for a while. Um, on the timescale of the earth, not very long, but, you know, well over a decade now. Um, (laughs) And they've, we've seen such a huge increase in their um, sort of ubiquity in the culture and their appeal to the average person, I think for a few Mm -hmm. reasons. Um, One, times are bad economically. Um, Young people are increasingly unable to sort of um, set up a viable financial life for themselves long-term and especially young people who made all of the, you know, quote, right decisions that authority figures told them would lead them to a financially stable life. Um, You know, those decisions no longer, that end of the bargain is no longer being held up. The social contract has been broken in that regard. Um, And things that used to be very accessible, you know, supporting a household on a single income, buying a starter home, um, you know, having Mm -hmm. a, a dignified retirement, these things are not realistic for an increasingly large uh, portion of the population, again, especially for young people. And then simultaneously, you have a pretty serious influx of cheap, you know, cash, venture capital and, you know, large scale financial backing to a lot of these um, crypto based uh, ventures. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, cheap money flying around there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they can afford to advertise on the Super Bowl and be on billboards and buy celebrity endorsements and seem very legitimate. Uh, so, you know, if it weren't this, it would be something else. But I think, you know, for me, the reason that, you know, things like cryptocurrency are so particularly dangerous as opposed to like, you know, your standard MLM where you end up with, you know, some debt and a bunch of leggings Um, is that the framing around it that sort of purports to be, um, you know, a financial instrument, a real currency, a valid security. um, This is deeply, deeply misleading to people and gives it sort of a sense of, you know, gravitas and um, stability that uh, is, I think, in many ways, intentionally deceptive and dangerous. Yeah, it's a it's a as a as a person who has done marketing, it's a it's a great tool for marketing because it's confusing, 
but also there are lots of examples of people who have made good money uh, or or at least so far um you know depending on whether they've gotten out or not um you, you can count that as actually having made money and uh and and it's so it's so uh almost intentionally confusing that you can kind of say anything about it and it's like this is going to open up the banking system to the developing world this is going to d- d- like break down all the barriers this is going to fix uh, the art market, it's going to fix taxes. And I'm like, I think that I think like what when when the only way that this is a thing that you can sort of th- think that it can solve this scale of problem is if I don't know, anytime somebody says to me that they know they have a solution that fixes every problem, I'm like, well, you are not interfacing correctly with the complexity of the problems that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and and, you know, I have correspondingly get people who are quite mad at me when they're like, why, why, why are you upset about this thing? It's my only path out of the situation that I'm inside of. No, and it's it not. is the only path for people to get, you know, to get a, a, the, the comfort that they had, have been promised or that they deserve. No, it's um, not. They're wrong. But also, um, you know, I, I think the, the thing about it that is also so incredibly dangerous is that there is such an ability to come, like committing fraud is so profoundly baked into the architecture of the system. It's barely even fraud. I mean, so many of the biggest sales mm-hmm. that we see happening in this market are people selling to themselves to make, you know, something look yeah. valuable or in demand. And to yeah, me, if the, you see a, uh, an asset transferring and it goes, it's like, oh, it was bought for $10 and then somebody made $90 selling it and somebody made $900 selling it. it. turns out it's just the same person buying it from themselves over and over again to make it feel like there's a big market for this one product. Exactly. And to me, the idea that anyone could look around at our current financial system and say, the thing that we need is less regulation and less consumer protection (laughs) is just, to me, psychotic. Oh, Lord. Well, here's a uh, how about we get to a more normal problem? Because I think that knowing the audience that we have, uh, we are preaching a little bit to acquire uh, and that uh, it it is a frustrating uh, moment, but there are also lots of normal problems. For example, the one that Andrea has. We've heard a version of this question probably hundreds of times. Dear Hank and Chelsea, like so many people right now, I'm in the midst of job hunting. I'm currently employed, but I've been at the same company for six years and my job hasn't changed and my pay reflects that stagnation. A friend of mine just started at a big tech company and recommended me for a similar role, but I looked into the company and it's really big and scary sounding and leaves me with a bit of a pain in my chest. The pay is a lot higher, but I'm not sure if it aligns with my values. Um, How do you ethically capitalism? How much should I honor the icky feeling that I get looking at most job postings, but also have money to eat, sleep, survive. Not the opera singer, Andrea from San Francisco. Well, you don't ethically capitalism, right? I mean, I think that 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 entire paradigm of making, navigating capitalism in an ethical or morally unimpeachable way, an individual responsibility and an arbiter of an individual's values is I, I think it's not only really ineffective, but I think it's also a very deliberate um, framing by the people who, by the people, organizations, legislators, et cetera, who mm-hmm. benefit from people thinking that their individual choices are what sort of determine the outcomes or, you know, reflect them. For most people, the ability to make quote unquote ethical choices under capitalism uh, is just a question of resources. Can you say yeah. no to things? Can you buy from 
you know, sustainable producers? Can you opt out of things like fast fashion or big agriculture, any of that stuff? I mean, 99% of those choices come down to your own financial resources. So if it were a question of whether or not, you know, if, if, if the arbiter were how ethical your choices are and your decision-making skills are, um, basically what we've said is that every person under a certain income is bad and they're just condemned to be yeah. bad um, because they mm -hmm. can't afford to make better choices. After that, I mean, <laughs> where you work is ultimately a lot for people, right? Because it's not just where you get your money from. It's where you, I mean, it's how many people associate you. It's how people associate your, themselves. Um, it's also, it's an identity. It's where a lot of your social life is going to come from. You're going to be surrounded with people, um, who probably have certain feelings and live certain lifestyles. Um, and to that extent where you work is often a slightly more important choice, uh, because it does have mm -hmm. the individual level of impact, both, you know, on the organization and on yourself individually is so much higher than like where you buy a t-shirt. Um, so most people do make some kind of a calculus, like maybe they'll buy from Amazon every now and again, but they wouldn't work for Amazon. Um, I think everyone has to draw that own their their own line themselves and know that ultimately on some level it's going to be arbitrary and it's going to be based on kind of what feels right for you. Um, right. But I would say if you are keeping yourself in financial hardship in order to feel more morally consistent, um, on every level you are able to have more of a positive impact on the world around you if you are more financially stable and able to um, spend your time and your money in ways that are, um, you know, productive and beneficial toward the causes that you care about. So don't keep yourself in poverty, um, to feel good. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, I think that it's obviously should always be the case that like the standards we apply to ourselves, we need to make sure that we're not applying those to other people. I, I'm always very frustrated when I hear some mom talking about how she would never take her children to McDonald's. And I'm like, okay, well, but you are in a, you are in a very different situation. So, so do that for, for your values, but don't apply that to someone else who is, you know, who, who's in a completely different situation from you and, yes. uh, and, and feel as if you were a better person than that person, because you, you get to make dis different decisions. And, uh, but um, I, I am, you know, I think that the, like this is a really tricky thing at this moment, and we are we are seeing that that power actually matters. You know, you're seeing, for example, Facebook having a really hard time recruiting talent, and that actually does change the way that they uh, like it changes their their opportunities for success, and it changes what they focus on, and it may change their decisions. And I've seen firsthand people who work at big tech companies having a lot more power in the decisions that those tech companies make than anyone outside of them, it, you know, except for maybe for, for like large investors, because recruitment is hard. Getting great people is hard. Um, and, and so there is a power in being inside of that, but you also have to understand that that power is, is, you know, it's bigger than the power that, you know, the average person has, but it is not something where you're going to be able to alone change the, the course of uh, the company's decision-making. Um, so don't think that you're getting into it to, uh, to change them, but, uh, but do understand that you will remain a person with your values inside of that company and that that may have an impact on the, you know, at least the, the work that you are doing there. And also, I have a lot of friends who came, I, I, I did an environmental studies uh, graduate program, and I have friends who came out of that and they started working for companies that, like, 
have done bad stuff. And uh, they tended to work in parts of those big, big companies that that had more positive impacts. But they also took the the skills and the connections that they developed at those companies. And now that I'm 40 years old and they're 40 years old, like almost all of them are now outside of those companies, either working at their own things where they're trying to use those skills that they, de- they developed to do really interesting different things that they that are really in line with their values. Or they're working at smaller organizations that are doing that that are taking on those bigger companies because they they took that training, they took that education, they took that organizational knowledge, their the management skills they developed, uh, the connections that they developed to do other bigger, cooler things, like more interesting stuff. Absolutely, um, I think in general, people who hold progressive values are unfortunately often. Uh, very afraid of or very naive about power and what power allows, whether that's, you know, having, you know, having the kind of power in an organization where you maybe don't change, you know, uh, everything about that organization, but you can change a lot about how, you know, the people who work under you operate. You can make really big Mm -hmm. influences on you know, business development decisions or, um, you know, areas of spend or how money is allocated, whatever that might be. Um, But also power in the sense of, you know, if you, a lot of people, um, in order to kind of do something like some of these friends are doing where they work for these smaller organizations, these nonprofits, you know, they're, they're dedicating their professional lives to something that has a real chance of, um, you know, making a more, being more antagonistic to the problems, which I think is important. Um, how are you going to do that unless you have enough money to not really care how much you make for a given amount of time? Because in many cases, these jobs are, they can be voluntary, they can pay not enough to support a family, whatever it might be. Um, so in order to get to the place where you can have the ability to work on projects that really, you know, uh, really mean something to you, especially for more than a few hours a week, you need money to get there so that you can support yourself while you do it. And I think a lot of people are afraid of, you know, what it what it might take to to accumulate that money in the shorter term. But many people who are involved in the FIRE movement, which is the financial independence retire early, many of them do so with the explicit intent of being able to work uh, in a more volunteer uh, capacity mm-hmm. for the majority of their working life. But you have to earn a bunch yeah. of money to get there. Interesting. Um, here is a question from Etha that I need to ask because it's the exact opposite of my experience. Etha asks, why does cash not feel like real money anymore? I'm a 19-year-old college freshman. I've seen the transition from cash to credit to mobile pay within my lifetime. When I was younger, I only ever paid with things for things with cash. But now that I'm living uh, away from my family, I have several debit cards and a credit card that I use. And I found myself spending cash much more easily than swiping my card. If I'm told something is $20, I'll hand over that bill and not think twice about it. But if I have to swipe, I feel stress about that purchase. Is this because bank accounts let us see the numbers immediately dwindle? Is it because cash is just a green slip of fabric with no real value? Any help is appreciated, Etha. This is the exact opposite of the experience I had when I was 19, when I first got a debit card. And I was like, I don't know, blonk. <laughs> well, you're- uh, And like ex- the, the stack of like $60. So that's what I'd always have. I'd have like $60 in my pocket and like, how fast that $60 went away was really like the basis of my financial anxiety. Like if that $60 lasted for two weeks, then I was like, okay. But if it lasted for two days, I was like, ah, 
Wow. Uh, I don't know where you're getting $60 to take you for two weeks, but... Uh, I was I in college. <laughs> and um, You have your meal card, you got your room paid for. What am I doing? Your experience statistically lines up much more with the norm. People generally psychologically have a much harder time spending cash than they do cards, especially credit cards, because the money is not automatically disappearing from your account. Um, typically, the advice is to have people... People who have that relationship typically should do things like go on a cash diet, use the envelope system, um, use ways of budgeting and spending money that force you more into a cash system so you feel that you know stronger sense of attachment to the value of the dollars you're spending. For someone who doesn't think um, cards feel real, or no, no, it's who feels that uh, cards are very hard to spend on, but dollars just fly out of their hands. I mean, mm-hmm. don't have, do- like, don't keep cash don't on you for those. the most. I mean, I don't know how you're going to buy drugs and go to strip clubs, but you know, for the rest of it, you can go, you know, cash free. <laughs> That's true. I, I mean, it's, it's wild to me that we uh, are, it's, and, it, and this feel, feels like a transition that has happened in the last few years. But like at this point, I rarely have cash in my wallet. Oh no. In New York, you always have cash. At least I think you do. There's so much stuff oh, that's wow. like so much easier to do with cash in in the city. Hmm. Nothing. Nothing. And uh, I I feel like people would. It's the, the the tapping of my phone on a thing is so fast. I feel like I'm doing someone a favor. I'm like, look, you don't have. We don't have to do any of that stuff that we used to have to do. It happened much faster. Everybody's gone. Nobody's waiting in line after as I'm trying to trying to get get my quarters back from you that I don't know what to do with. Um. What, what is the envelope system? Um, you have envelopes where you have allocated amounts of money for different aspects of your budget. So like your food, your going out, clothes, whatever it might be. Usually your bills will still be automated on, you know, your right. debit card or whatever. But um, all the like more discretionary spending is in cash of predetermined amounts that are in envelopes. Mm. And you take mm-hmm. the cash out to spend on those things. And once the cash is gone, that portion of the budget is closed for this month. And the, the idea is imposing the control so that you do not have to have the control. Like, imposing the you control. create the self-control ahead of time. It's, it's a lot easier. This is like not buying Oreos versus not eating them once they're in your house. It's imposing the control, but it's also having a very tactile and visual representation of how much diminishment you're seeing in a given budget category over the mm-hmm. course of a month. Where can I learn more about the envelope system? The financial diet on YouTube? Yeah. You know what? You can do just that. You can do just that. <laughs> this is, uh, here. here's another question um, from Hannah. Where do millionaires keep their money? I've been thinking about this. Nothing seems to be the correct answer. Do you have one account with a lot of money in it? Or do you have a lot of bank accounts with less money? Having one bank account with millions of dollars in it seems kind of irresponsible to me. Imagine if you lose your credit card. Unfortunately, not in Montana. Hannah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so most people with substantial um, assets, typically they'll keep, you know, uh, their emergency fund, which is about, you know, six or so months worth of uh, living expenses. Um, Plus, you know, if they're saving for any really shorter term goals, um, like anything that's like two years or less that they're saving for or want to have money for, they'll keep that in various accounts. They'll probably have a, you know, a little bit of money in their checking. Um, But for the majority of their money, if they're smart, it's going to be in places like, you know, mutual funds, ETFs. It's going to be in their retirement Mm -hmm. accounts. It's 
the, the money is going to be somewhere where it's doing more work than, you know, if it's sitting in an average uh, bank account out by, you know, the current rate of inflation with how much, you know, interest you get on that account, you're basically losing money if you keep it in oh, yeah. a regular bank account. I mean, so it's even even before inflation was was high, that was the case because interest rates have been so, so low. What does that mean, though? What so so an interest rate in a savings account is how much money the bank pays me to keep my money in that account, right? That's correct. And it when I was first putting money into an account, it was like five or six percent. Um, and it has not been anywhere near that in like 20 years. No, no, it's not. So the the alternative to that is to have it be in in you said an ETF. Yeah, so any kind of well-diversified uh, fund of investments. So, um, you know, most people, when they think of investing, they think about like an individual stock, like, oh, I'm going to buy a couple stocks of, you know, Nike or Apple or Tesla um, and just hope that they do well. Um, that is not a sound way to invest. That's not how most people invest and certainly not how smart people invest. Uh, most investments are going to come in something called a fund, which is basically just like a very large basket full of teeny, teeny, tiny little percentages of stocks and bonds from all over the market. Sometimes they are pegged to a specific part of the market, like an index fund. Sometimes they represent the market the market more broadly. But basically, they're a way, you probably heard the term diversified. It's a way to make sure that your investments are very diversified. And generally, the returns mm-hmm. on these will be um, comparable to whatever the returns on the broader market are. I think they average out to about 7 7.5% over a, a long enough time scale. Right. Which is, yeah. So, and then you, you build that investment account at like Fidelity or Charles Schwab or, or one of the E-Trade. Is that one of them? The newer, younger ones. Um, and, and they are very happy to take your money because oftentimes ETFs have a little bit of a fee that you pay to be inside of them, though. There are now a few that have no fees, which I are my personal favorites. Yes. Um, Although we do tell people, a lot of people who've never invested before and are very overwhelmed by the concept, um, starting out with what is called a robo-advisor, which are basically these little apps that just do everything for you and give you a little statement. And it, you know, bases your investments on your goals and your timeline and all of that stuff and the amount you're investing. Um, They take a higher fee than what is called, you know, a self-managed brokerage where you're, you know, moving the money around and deciding Mm -hmm. how to allocate it and stuff. Um, they typically take a higher fee, but for many people, it is the hump that they kind of get over to get into investing. Right. Nothing wrong with those either. What's what's a good ro- what's a good robo advisor? I mean, they're they're pretty comparable. I would just look at their fees, but I mean, you probably heard of like Wealthfront, Betterment, Acorns, um, oh, yeah, Wealth yeah, Simple, all of those. I mean, that's I'd, I I've heard of those things, but I had not really understood what they were or how they operated because it feel it felt a little bit like whenever I hear about them, they talk about uh, saving strategies and and in financial insight, like insight into your current financial situation, more than they do about sort of the the advising that they do to help you get a good return, which is I don't know, um, but that that seems like a big deal, especially because it's you know, having an actual like human financial advisor can be either uh, they won't, you're like not really worth their attention because there isn't enough money in the account or they take a pretty big fee because they're a human. Sure. (laughs) And you can learn more at the Financial YouTube channel, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, Kinga has a question, which uh, 
I feel like you're gonna. I feel like you're gonna have such so much better advice than I would have, dear Hank and Chelsea. How do I not feel bad about leaving my job? I'm a librarian and have been in my current and first ever job for over three years, but it doesn't pay that well, and I kind of need the money, so I'm looking for a new job. But the guilt, I feel so bad searching for a new job without them knowing. It makes me feel bad, and leaving my department where I know that I'm needed makes me feel bad. They'll have to look for somebody new, and my boss, who was already doing a million other projects, will have to cover my work. I hate creating problems for her. Help. The anxiety uh, around all of this is immense, and I would love to have one less thing on my to-worry-about list. Love the pod, Kinga. Such a good question, and such is so well uh, articulated that, like, you are a human, and, and you know, in, in our work— we understand that our job is to help each other out, help out our coworkers. I think that's a lot of what motivates people in their work. And that does like sort of put you up against this, like in my daily life, I'm going to act like a human and I'm going to think and care about my coworkers like a human. But like the, the economy isn't really going to necessarily treat us this way. Does that make sense? 100%. So, I mean, now if she were feeling this way about working at like, I don't know, Amazon, it'd be like, Girl, get over it because they don't give a about you. You shouldn't give a about yeah. them. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> but working at the library, which I feel very strongly about, you know, obviously that's sadder. And I do, I mean, it also comes with the existential sadness of knowing that like libraries are terribly underfunded and, you know, have mm-hmm. a hard time retaining people because, you know, they don't pay enough and this, that, and the other. Um, but I think at the end of the day, this isn't really so much a question about how not to have massive anxiety about this one issue. It's how not to have anxiety about things that are foregone conclusions or that are not going to change the outcomes. If you're already Mm. optimizing for quitting in the most, you know, manageable way possible for them, for setting, you know, for, for giving them the most notice you can afford to give them for doing everything you can to, you know, close up your projects for, you know, maintaining contact with the people that you really, you know, care about and want to, you know, keep in your professional circle or your personal life, then though you've already taken the decision you already know what you're doing you're already doing it the best way you can now you're just experiencing anxiety that's punishing yourself effectively and i do think that that's less a professional question and more a question for you know whether it's a therapist or talking to someone in your life that you know you trust about these things because the tendency that people especially women have to beat themselves up about something that they've already decided on or that they're already taking action on is just kind of a form of, you know, self-punishment and is something that I think um, should really be dealt with more as a mental health question. Yeah, I yeah, I, I think you are right. And I think also that, you know, there are certainly like ways that coworkers appreciate more and less for a transition. Like, do you have the space to help train a replacement? Do you have the space to give a longer period of notice? Um, and and it, and is your and the person who is hiring you are they going to allow for that? Because sometimes you know they give you a start date and you have to do the start date and you're not going to work two jobs at the same time. You're not because that won't be good for anybody. Um, and and I think that that like that understanding that this is like organizations have to have space for this and um, and there are people in the world who would like the job that you have right now. And they're going to learn in that job the way that you learned in that job. And they're going to connect with your coworkers and they're going to fill the, you know, have, bring different skills and different abilities. And, uh, but like the, 
you know, we we are definitely in a world where people are going to like pe- like organizations expect turnover. Three years is a long time to not have turnover, uh, especially if if a job ha- doesn't hasn't had doesn't have a lot of opportunity for advancement. And uh, and there needs to be space for that to exist. And, and that can be really hard at organizations that are especially underfunded places, especially nonprofits. Libraries would be a good example of you know, a place where there might not be that space built in, but they need to have that. And, um, and I think that like, just by virtue of the fact that you're caring about this, you're probably, uh, pretty far ahead of, of a lot of people who would be in a a similar situation in terms of how you're going to support your colleagues on the way out. Well, I also, I mean, something that I think kind of generally is that guilt is, a somewhat selfish emotion. Not to say that it's bad, but it is a self-serving emotion. You're either going to modify your behavior in some way um, or make different decisions, um, in which case it's not guilt. It's like, you know, sort of a productive movement towards a better outcome um, or Mm -hmm. an outcome that feels better to you. Or um, it's just sort of uh, self-flagellating for something that's already done. And so really separating the two. And if you're just feeling bad, you feeling bad about it isn't going to help them. You know, it it is of no benefit to the library. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also okay to like grieve in, in moments like that, where like there are things that you like about this place um, that you have to move on from. And that's just like the, the grieving of moving to a new city or ending any relationship. But grief, Um, but grief is a productive emotion, right? Like grief help helps us move through something guilt about something you've already done is like, and aren't going to change is who, who, who benefits? Yeah. At that point, uh, are you, are you, it's just like, do you just, and also I think the main thing here is you are not a bad person. For doing this, no. This is like, like the, this is like, you are doing the right thing for for you and the, the normal thing and the thing that 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 anyone else would do. Um, so that is like to get away from shame, especially. Um, uh, I think would be really important in this moment, and and to let to let the grief motivate you to act as rightly as you can, but then beyond that, try and let it go. Yes. Gosh, what a. What a world, uh, Chelsea. Th- which reminds me that this podcast is is actually sponsored by Guilt. They reached out to us and they were like, "I don't think people, I don't think people are indulging enough. Uh, we're going to give you a little bit of cash. Spread the news. Good news about feeling bad about stuff, even when you know it's the right thing to do." <laughs> <laughs> and this podcast is also brought to you by. I'm going to do three at once. It's Robo Advisors, it's ETFs, and it's the Envelope System. All of which you can find more about if you go to YouTube.com/slash/TheFinancialDiet. We also have a Project for Awesome message. This is from Boris from Switzerland, who says, you guys are amazing. I think he means me and John, Chelsea. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, but also, Boris. <laughs> who knows? That <laughs> freaking Rocky years, and Bowling last life. name. <laughs> and my, my worldview with your kindness, your determination to do good, and your hard work. That is extremely kind. Aww. I appreciate what you do immensely, and I'm on board, even if remotely, for the rest of my life. Okay. If you if you ever change your mind, that's fine. I'm sure this is a view that is reflected by thousands of others. So please take the time to celebrate and enjoy your success. I think that that last bit is important, and I think that I uh, and many people often do not take the time to celebrate and take a moment to say, "Good job, we did a good thing." Um, not I, me. I'm celebrating did, all the time about everything. <laughs> this episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know? 
looked at uh, about five billion, b -b -b billion. That's a I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. You do? <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Good for you. What is it about our society where it feels like investing is a man thing? When did that happen? And how and and what and what do we need to do to continue undoing that? Because it seems like a pretty important thing to have uh tied up in one of the genders. Yeah. I mean, so Statistically speaking, uh, in heterosexual couples, women manage the short-term finances, meaning the consumer decisions, the day-to-day -day yeah. budgeting, all of that stuff where you buy your milk. Um, and men manage the longer-term financial management, meaning retirement, investment, home buying, things like that. And women, on average, don't actually manage those things and in many cases aren't even aware of those things until the case of uh, death of a spouse or divorce. Um, 
And this is something that really kind of we see across income levels, we see across education levels. The numbers are starting to change slowly, but in general, women are sort of raised that money as a concept is uh, just something that men have, you know, more of an aptitude for, I guess. Um, Mm. And, you know, that women are really to manage the, the, the pocketbook, you know, the daily spending, which is hilarious when you consider that, you know, women have been in the workforce earning, you know, and securing long-term financial futures for families for decades now. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's still the kind of wisdom that most people grow up with. Also, I mean, it kind of ties into the women in STEM thing, right? Like women in general, um, typically are less, uh, they participate less in, um, endeavors, which heavily lean on things like mathematics, engineering, et cetera, which is its own can of worms that I'm not qualified to speak on. However, most people, male and female have the misconception that managing one's personal finances is a question of math. Uh, it is not. No one in this world is worse at math than I am. Um, and I'm pretty good at money. And uh, aside from a very, very, very limited number of basic calculations, um, there's no math involved in managing your long-term finances. And moreover, um, for the things that do require any kind of math, there's like a million apps out there. Most of them are free. <laughs> yeah. I am interested in r- risk as part of this conversation, because I know that like when I have managed money, um, I do like to put a little bit of risk into my portfolio, um, just because I want because I for for a little bit of fun. But I also know that that is the wrong thing to do, um, and that never has it actually long term turned out well. And that I all all always, which is what my father told me when I was twenty years old, would have been better served by only invest investing in funds that reflect the broader market. Yeah. I mean, your dad's right. I mean, also (laughs) you, you like me. I I love, I love how there are like really obvious concrete answers and you're not afraid to say them um, because, because like there are obvious concrete answers. There are concrete truths here that are not complicated. And I think a lot of people like treat finance as like a fun game and it's okay to treat it to some extent as a fun game. That's about like winning and it's, and it's very analogous to and related to the instincts around gambling. And it's not the exact same thing, but it's very, it, I don't know. In some cases it is the exact same thing. I think that like options trading and, and crypto are oftentimes just versions of casinos. So, Um, but so is individual stock picking, Hank at scale. So is individual stock picking. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes in this regard is that they did like a double blind study on the ability of, um, brokers to accurately predict the movement of several given stocks. So they Mm -hmm. gave them a portfolio and they had to predict what would happen to those stocks. And then they set those same stocks out on a floor as little tiles. And they had a bunch of kittens walk around them to determine what the kittens thought the performance would be. And the kittens outperformed the brokers. So (laughs) the thing is that if people... There's only two ways to accurate to accurately know what the stock market is going to do. One of them is insider trading, and that's what Martha uh-huh. Stewart went to jail for. Like if you're actually yep. getting privileged information that allows you to accurately bet on the stock market, you are committing a crime and you're committing one of the few white collar crimes they actually send people to prison for. Um, but the the other way to do it is to effectively just get really lucky, which does, yes, sometimes happen. But if people mm-hmm. were able to predict what an individual stock is going to do, 
the, the entire underlying concept of the market would have to change because it's based on the idea that you can't predict it. Um, yeah. That's what, you know, what leads to sort of the inherent value of it and, and what, you know, makes it so that one, you know, genius can't just come through and completely sweep the market. There are a limited, very, very limited number of mm. funds that will occasionally, you know, that they do consistently outperform the market by very, very marginal amounts. But yep. in general, no offense, even you, Hank, you're not that fund. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't, I definitely don't do individual stock picking at this point after, uh, after 20 years of doing it. I do not do it with the thought that um, I'm going to, to beat everything, which is why that, why 90% of my money is in either CDs, cash, or funds. But I would say the important difference here is that I, so I like going to casinos. Like I don't do it all the time, but I love to sure. go to Vegas. I love to play blackjack. I love to gamble. I think it's really fun. But I'm not deluding myself when I do that into thinking that yep. I'm making a financial decision. I know that I'm playing a game and that I'm probably mm -hmm. going to lose my money and that the cost mm -hmm. of playing the game is what I'm buying. Like, I enjoy it as a leisure activity. And I think the fact that people sometimes think that making these really, really risky speculative um, investments is somehow, quote unquote, like financial in nature. No, like you're having fun. You're paying for the thrill of seeing what's going to happen to Tesla or whatever, which is fine. But don't in your mind think that you're making some sort of financial decision. Yeah. And uh, and, and also like it's, it's amazing how large the industry of people who either try to get you to think that you know how to do stock picking or are doing it themselves and like will let you pay them to do it. It's a huge it's a huge number of people and there is absolutely no scientific evidence that that it has ever worked. No, although so it's very, well, yeah. occasionally people put together portfolios for hilarious reasons that will sometimes work out like one of my like nemeses in the like pundit class who's always going off about like tech and business and venture capital yeah. stuff in a way that uh -huh. I just don't usually agree with. So he has made some he is also, you know what, in some ways I almost have respect for him because he actually goes so far into making actual verifiable predictions, whereas a lot of these grifters will right, yeah, yeah. be very vague. But he, to his credit, has made a lot of absolutely bonkers and totally like ended up being wrong predictions. But to the extent that someone put together a portfolio that's just shorting all of his predictions, like for those who don't know, that means like basically betting against all of his predictions. And that mm -hmm. actually has been doing kind of well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's adorable. Okay, I have one last question for you. I think it's it's one that uh, having heard a little bit of this conversation, I think everybody will be asking. It's from Kellen who asks, Dear Hank and Chelsea, I'm looking to start investing because I'm an adult and that's what adults do. But at what point do I have enough money to actually do that? And how do like what is the first step that I would take to do it? Basically is what Kellen is asking in a much longer question. Uh, you're in luck, Hank, because this is another extremely true or false answer to which there's an actual response. The best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. Investing, the reason why it's awesome is because it functions on compound interest, which the more time it has to compound and interest itself, the better. Um, so especially for saving for things like retirement, you need a lot of money. So starting earlier is better. So the soonest you possibly can is the best time. When can you afford it? Do you have your emergency fund built up? Uh, that's, again, about six months of living expenses that you need uh, directly accessible in a savings account. So if your car breaks down or if you lose a job or whatever it might be, you're not on the street. Once that's mm -hmm. built up, 
Uh, you want to prioritize, you know, obviously paying down any super high interest debt like you have, you know, credit cards, things like that. Um, you want to make sure that those are being taken care of. But basically, as soon as you get free money in your budget of any amount, because you can invest a dollar a day, it doesn't or a dollar a month, really. It doesn't matter what mm -hmm. you're investing. As soon as you have that little bit of wiggle room after you have your emergency fund, it is absolutely crucial that you start investing it. And lastly, number three. Uh, if you have things like student debt or lower interest debts, there are great calculators out there that will show you whether it's a better idea right. to allocate more into investing versus paying off that debt. Because if you have like subsidized student debt that is like, you know, 3% or whatever interest, likely putting more money into a fund is going to be the better way. So you would pay less. Obviously, right. you're not going to just default on your loans, but you can pay closer to the minimum and then put that money towards investing. Um, and how do you do it? Could not be easier. You can open up uh, a self-managed brokerage at a place like, a, you know, a Fidelity, a Vanguard, whatever. You can uh, use a robo app where you just download the app and it walks you through the process. Um, also, chances are, if you work at a larger employer, you probably have access to some kind of employer-sponsored uh, retirement fund, things like 401ks, 403bs. So talk to your HR department about those things. There are also individual retirement accounts, IRAs. You probably have heard of those. You can also have them at the same time you have something like a 401k. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to just have a lot of 101 investing information, not to pimp our own channel, but uh, youtube.com <laughs> slash the financial diet. So I'm interested in the reserve fund. The emergency fund? Yeah. So as an example, you don't need an emergency fund. You need to be able to live for six months with no income. And that can take different shapes. And one of the shapes that that often takes for people is a good support network of family who you know can take care of you if the worst happens. So is it okay? And like, how should people think about the, this, obviously there's inequity there, there's there's privilege there, but is there, it, it, but like, is it worth thinking about like investing earlier if you feel like you have a support network? The really throwing caution version of an emergency fund is three months of living expenses. Six months is ideal. Three months is the minimum. Mm -hmm. it, I don't care if your family is like daddy Warbucks and you can go live on their compound in Connecticut and, you know, whatever it might be, <laughs> your financial security and financial health should never be based on the presumption that someone else is going to bail you out because then you're dependent on their financial situation and their liquidity mm -hmm. and their availability. And like, even if let's say you could go live with your family, are you able to suddenly change cities if they don't live in the same city as you? Also, even if you had to move out of your home, that costs money. Like finding someone to replace you on your lease costs money. Like you never, ever want to be in a situation where your entire financial safety net, you know, resides on other people. Um, but if you need to be more aggressive about doing things like debt payoff or getting, you know, your retirement ground, retirement off the ground. The, the minimum you can go with is a three-month emergency fund, minimum. Okay. Ch Chelsea Fagan does not not have her opinions figured out on this stuff, you guys. It's, uh, it's solid. She, she knows where she stands. She stands there. I mean, yeah, but I think a lot of these things are not totally opinions. I think a lot of them are just like the reality of what we know happens to people, right? Because like you don't have right. to lose your job to need an emergency fund. You could need an emergency fund because we have like no comparable healthcare system in this country and you like need stitches right. and you know mm -hmm. your copay is very high. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chelsea, let's end with this question from Benjamin who asks, dear Chelsea and Hank, uh, like most self-respecting seven-year-olds, my son really loves dinosaurs. However, he has very little regard for 
egg yolks, which I personally find to be the best part of the egg. In an effort to marry these two topics, will we ever know which dinosaur would have had the best tasting eggs and how best we could cook them? An oof is enough, Benjamin. Uh, I know that this is not a topic that you're an expert on, Chelsea, um, but 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 look, neither am I. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I don't even know what the question is. The question is, what dinosaur egg would taste best? Oh, my God. I, whew, I'll let you take the first crack at this do, one. Do you, not, do you not spend a lot of time thinking about this? So wh- one thing I know is that ostrich eggs taste very much like chicken eggs. In fact, most bird eggs taste like bird eggs. Now, there are people who will tell you the differences in the taste, and I believe them. I've never had ostrich egg, but I have heard, but people have, and apparently it tastes a lot like, it it tastes a little bit more rich than a chicken egg. And you can make, with an ostrich egg, 30 omelets that are roughly the size of a three-egg omelet. With a single egg. So I think that, I think, Benjamin, the situation that we're in is that all of the dinosaur eggs would probably taste pretty good, but the ones that are going to taste most like a chicken egg, which is the ones that we obviously have developed a taste for, are going to be the ones that eat chicken-like stuff. So you're going to be looking for a dinosaur that eats grass and insects, would be my guess. I would also say whatever dinosaur had the best vibes slash was living the most stress-free lifestyle because... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To go back to our earlier conversation about how being able to make ethical choices uh, as a consumer basically comes down to money. So now that my husband and I have the financial ability to do so, we're like very, very picky about the animal products that we buy for, you know, all Mm -hmm. kinds of reasons. And man, you get that farm fresh egg, you will never eat another grocery store egg again. They're so (laughs) gross. And you're just like, it's so, and those chickens are living great lives. They got friends. They probably go to like chicken yoga and stuff. So, so we want to. You want whatever dinosaur is a vegetarian or insects, and also does yoga. Yoga dinosaurs yeah. all the way. You don't want one of those prey dinosaurs that was like always freaked out and running away. Like exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the idea. I like the idea of uh, googling what was the most chill dinosaur. <laughs> I feel like it's. I, don't we all grow up with the assumption that it's Brontosaurus? Yeah, like the really tall one. Seems yeah, Brontosaurus seems very chill. It probably eats a lot of the same things that a chicken would. It probably eats a lot of like crustaceans, but accidentally, uh, and has a bunch of a bunch of uh, veg aside from that, and not worried. Just I don't feel like I'd be worried if I was a brontosaurus. No, they can just neck swat any predator out of the way. They're exactly. great. There's going to be a bunch of people who are going to get mad at me because brontosaurus don't technically exist. But you know what I mean. What? Yeah. Turns out brontosaurus has never existed. I, I'm sorry. I have to be the one to bring you this news. Wait, I'm sorry. What? The, the long neck <laughs> dinosaur from like the land before time and stuff didn't exist? The the long there are there are many long neck dinosaurs, apatosauruses. Uh, that, there's a bunch there's a bunch of them uh, that did exist, uh, but brontosauruses specifically were a species of dinosaur that were created from a bunch of bones from different dinosaurs being cobbled together into a dinosaur that uh, somebody tried to pass off as a species, but turned out or like I don't know if he thought that it was a species. But he just had a bunch of different, like, partial skeletons of similar-looking dinosaurs and called a brontosaurus. But as far as I know, brontosaurus remains not a real thing. 
being a scientist back in like the 1700s was so cool. Like you could just do whatever you wanted and no one could verify it. Oh God. The, look, I just Googled it and apparently Brontosaurus is back. What? Apparently it's back. Uh, it's been reinstated. <laughs> what? This is. Now I have to go, now I have to dive deep and I have to tell, like, I have to issue an apology, a retraction. Brontosaurus didn't exist, but then it did. Brontosaurus stomps back its claim. <laughs> Brontosaurus stomps back to claim its status as a real dinosaur, like Pluto. Dinos- Brontosaurus became a non species. Now scientists say that they may have made the wrong call. They're going to, I'm going to flag this podcast for misinformation on Spotify <laughs> for the journey that you took me on with that brontosaurus. Oh, geez. Uh, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit of your insight, but mostly your rock solid uh, concrete truth telling around finance. Thank There's you. no opinions here. Nope. <laughs> the, you, you are not going to pick stocks. And you need to be the best time to be invested is right now. There's no better time than yesterday. It is very true. Um, Thank you for having me. Uh, Many people may not know this, but it is because of Hank Green that we even have a YouTube channel at all. He plucked us from obscurity. I read something that you wrote and I was like, let's have, I'm going to be in New York. Let's go have dinner together at a long bench table with a bunch of other people, apparently, is how you do it. No, Sometimes. no. I was like, I remember walking into that place because it was like a fancy, expensive restaurant, but it had tables like at a Le Pan Quotidien where like everyone just sits kind of like yeah. wherever they may. And I was like, if you're paying these prices, I would like my own table. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, why haven't you ever made YouTube stuff? And you were like, because I don't like the idea of being in front of the camera. Look at you now. Look at me now. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Hank. I loved it. Yeah, a ton of fun. And you can find Chelsea and lots of more great information at youtube.com slash The Financial Diet. I am theoretically, at least, if we get it together, some point quite soon going to be releasing a video there about uh, finance and uh, the creator economy. Is the goal, anyway. We'll see. Thank you to everybody who sent in your questions. You can send in more at hankandjohn at gmail.com. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Debuki Truck Rivardi. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.